John chapter 2, you should have read ahead. I'll read 11 verses. It says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of the Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, and we've all struggled with this, right? Woman, he doesn't say mother. What does your concern have to do with me? This is your problem, not my problem, right? It doesn't sound like Jesus. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing about 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast, and he took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. John writes here, the servants who drew the water, they knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And then when the guests have well drunk, and I got to tell you, this ain't grape juice, okay? These people were pretty pickled, I'm sure, by now. Then the inferior, you have kept the good wine till now. And verse 11 says, this was the beginning of signs, the beginning of wonders, the beginning of miracles that Jesus did in Cana of the Galilee that manifested his glory. And John said, the disciples believed in him. Now, everybody knows about this miracle. Uh, even people that never read the Bible, they might not know Jesus had turned the other cheek. They know he turned water into wine. And I always wonder why he did this. He dealt us a bad hand sometimes, I think, because people take this as a license to drink alcohol in abundance. You know, how many people have you witnessed to and they're like, hey, don't judge me, bro. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine. I'm not doing anything wrong. Uh, Pastor Herb Lusk, who's a friend of Calvary, you, you've seen Herb here a lot of times, played for the Eagles and now pastors uh, Greater Exodus Baptist Church, has people for people, just a wonderful work of God. Well, we go to a golf outing every summer. It's a fundraiser, and Herb starts the golf opening every year with a real corny joke. So his real corny joke this year was, you know, a pastor's driving down the road, and he looks in his rearview mirror, and he sees, you know, the, the sirens, you know, the police officer behind him, and the officer comes up and said, sir, is anything wrong? And the pastor said, no, everything's fine. He said, well, sir, you're swerving back and forth. Have you been drinking? And he said to the officer, how dare you? I am a minister of the gospel. I'm a reverend. And he said, okay, sir, but, you know, I see a glass on the other seat. Is there alcohol in there? He said, absolutely. I'm a reverend. I'm a pastor. He said, sir, would you mind if I inspect what's in that glass? And so the man, the pastor handed the glass to the officer, and the officer said, sir, this is wine. And the pastor said, darn, Jesus done it again. <laughs> Told you it was corny. So this is our third week in John. And every week I've been sharing that what is so invigorating about John is 90% of what John writes you can't find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This 90, maybe 100-year apostle is dipping back 60, 70 years. And, and his, his memory is being jogged. He can see images. And he begins to tell us things that no one tells us. Uh, he writes an epilogue in John chapter 20, verse 30. And he said, truly, Jesus did many other signs, many other wonders or miracles, 
which are not written in this book. Some are in Matthew, some in Mark, some in Luke. Some we'll never know about, right? He said if, if we wrote everything Jesus did, you know, you need libraries that would fill the world. But he said these were written. John said, I selected these seven for two reasons. That you might know Jesus is the Son of God, and when you come to that conclusion, you would have life in his name. Uh, what's so refreshing about John's gospel is it's highly relational, right? It doesn't begin with the genealogy. There's no prophecies. There's no parables. There's no end of the world. It's just these one-on-one -on -one encounters with Jesus and real human beings like you and me. People we don't even know their names. The woman caught in adultery. The woman at the well. People that are struggling. People that are in pain. People with heavy burdens. Jesus isn't afraid of poor people. He's not afraid of rich people and intelligent people. You know, he'll spar with Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel. He'll spar with Pilate, who makes his name into the Apostles' Creed. amazes me. And so we love this because there's these one-on-one -on -one encounters. However, this might be the most apologetic gospel. Because John said, I selected these signs that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. John, in many ways, is saying, I challenge you to read my book and not come to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. And then there's life in his name, zoe. We talked about this last week, the Greek word. Life the way it was meant to be. Life the way God designed you and me to live. The abundant life that John will talk about. Now, because this is the beginning of signs or miracles, we need to talk about two minutes or less about miracles because people are all over the place on this. So let me give you four quick things on miracles. Number one, there's a reason why Jesus rose from obscurity to become the greatest figure of the human race, all right? You know, Jesus was raised in a backwater town of the Roman Empire. A lot of people think, well, he was a moral teacher, and, you know, he was a moral man, and yes, Jesus lived a sinless life, and they'll say, well, he died for a great cause, but had that been all about Jesus, you and I would have never known about him. The reason we know about Jesus is miracles, Nicodemus was right in John chapter 3 when he says, Rabbi, nobody can do what you're doing unless God be with him. And of course, the resurrection being the greatest uh, miracle of Jesus' life. The second thing about miracles is they are events that override the laws of the physical universe. I don't know if you know this, but the universe has been elegantly designed. And that's why people who don't even know Christ can, can plumb the depths of the universe because everything's fine-tuned. Uh, but we, we tend to chalk everything up as a miracle. You all remember Sully, the airline pilot? Tom Hanks, remember that guy? Tom Hanks played him. Remember this picture? This is a guy who landed an airplane on the Hudson River. And you imagine flying that day and you're out on the wing. That's like a scary-looking shot. Nobody harmed, nobody injured, right? Scores of papers the next day emblazoned miraculous landing. This was a miracle. And for days on talk shows, they talked about this, this was a miracle. The only person that didn't believe it was a miracle was Captain Sully. He went on daytime talk shows and said, I trained for this all my life. Thousands of hours in a simulator. Um, he lived by what the Navy SEALs lived by. We don't rise to a challenge, we fall to our training. And that's exactly what Sully did. So the next time you get the primo spot at the mall, sorry, that's not a miracle. The next time you go to a DMV and actually come out with what you went in for, like a license, that's not a miracle. It's close. It's not a miracle. 
A miracle overrides the laws of the universe. You can't turn water into wine unless you bypass the fermentation process. Same with opening blind eyes, etc. Number three, Jesus never performed miracles to draw attention to himself. Jesus didn't stand up at the wedding, take a fork, clink it on a glass and say, oh, everybody listen up. We're out of wine and I'm the son of God, so watch this, abracadabra, your glass will be filled. Now, we would have coached him to do that, right? You know, God, you know, if you just do that, my friends will believe. But Jesus never did that. In fact, look at his miracles. Oftentimes, he just says, draw the water. And add to that, nobody knew. Now, Mary and John know because they're privy to the conversation, but no one knew what had happened. That's why the word signs are here. A sign is a miracle that points to a greater reality. And so there was something Jesus was teaching them here. And finally, we all think that if we see a miracle, it'll spark belief. And it's usually the other way around. We'll talk about that towards the end. Uh, remember, the greatest people group that ever saw miracles were Israel. Manna for 40 years. Every day, your food just laying out there like dew. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the plagues. And why did they enter the land? Unbelief. If miracles produced belief, then why were they in unbelief? So with that under our belt about miracles, why was this the first miracle? Why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke not write about it? Why is John just full of imagery? Why does he remember this? What's it pointing to? Again, it seems odd when you compare it to all of Jesus' other miracles. In fact, Michael Card said it's the most unmiraculous, miraculous thing Jesus ever did. When you put it up against all of his ministry, it seems almost insignificant. The predominant part of Jesus' miracle ministry were physical healings, and for a reason. The Old Testament said that when God would come, when the Messiah would come, he would come with healing in his wings. When Jesus was handed the scroll in the synagogue of Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he'll open blind eyes and deaf ears. People ask all the time, why don't we see more healing today? Can I give you a answer? It's not the answer. And this is coming from somebody that believes in healing and divine healing and the gift of healing. We don't see more healing because Jesus isn't here. Jesus was here physically. He was God in the flesh. The kingdom was here. And he was showing us the way life was meant to be. He was God in the flesh. There were times where Jesus, it says, would walk into a town and heal everybody. I don't know if that's hundreds or thousands. But the Gospels give us 26 distinct healings. Four times he healed blindness, twice leprosy. One of those times there were 10 lepers. Twice fever, six times demon possession, three times paralysis. Three times he raised someone from the dead. Then you get into miracles of provision, the 5,000, the 10,000 with a few fish and a few loaves. He calmed seas and storms, walked on water. You put all that together and, wow, why is this the first miracle? How did this manifest his glory? He turned water into wine. Some commentators believe that this actually validates this was a true event. That if you were making up the life of Jesus, you would never start with this miracle. You would start with something way more significant. So what's John doing here? What's in the back of John's mind? To really understand where John's going, the dead giveaway is the occasion. Verse 1 says that Jesus and Mary and all the disciples 
We're at a wedding. This is very important. Uh, you probably all have some imagery in your mind. Weddings were a big deal on that day. Guys, they're a big deal today. Some of you parents have had your wallet lightened because of weddings, right? Got to outdo the other person, and your daughter's got to be a queen for a day. I get all that, and, you know, I do too many weddings, and I see too many, but uh, for all of you, they are joyous occasions, right? And why? Because something new is happening, right? It's the culmination of parenting, and now two lives live separately and apart are going to become one flesh, and they're going to have kids, and there's a brand new life. And so weddings are just a special time. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's more to learn in the house of mourning, more to learn at a funeral than in the house of feasting. So when I do funerals, I tell people, look, including me, no one planned to be here. Not e I don't say this, but not even the guy in the box. No one planned to be here today. And what we're all learning today is one day we will be the guy in the box. We learn life is short, life is fragile. We lose the ones we love. And every time I do a funeral, I hug my wife just a little harder. And I call my kids on the phone, and life is precious, it's fragile. There's a lot to learn in the house of mourning. But you go to a wedding, you don't learn anything. People are drinking, they're dancing badly, they're having a good time, right? Nobody learns anything except, man, we went broke over this wedding. But the wedding is a perfect backdrop to maybe the most profound imagery in all the Bible. Have you ever wondered how the Bible starts out with creation and it should, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? The very next thing we see is a wedding. God says it's not good for the man to be alone, Genesis 2.8. He fashions a woman, Genesis 2.18. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And Paul said that's a mystery, the, the mingling of souls, and, and God presided over that wedding. Uh, then we get to the Song of Solomon, so risque that the Jewish moms wouldn't let their boys read it till they were 13. Song of Solomon begins, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. If you're a visitor and you know nothing about Christianity, I am reading out of the Bible. For your love is better than wine because of the fragments of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. Uh, we will be glad and rejoice with you. We will remember your love more than wine. And some of you I've lost for the rest of the day. But, um, you know, I believe this is physical. I believe God gave us attraction and sexuality and all. But the rabbis made this an allegory. They said, you know, Israel was espoused to a husband. And his banner over us is love. And they, they ran hard with this. And you can read volumes about it. The early church fathers did the same thing and said, this is Christ in the church. Because four times in the New Testament, Genesis 2.18, Paul says, I tell you a mystery, this is Christ in the church. Jesus comes along and tells us about a wedding. He, you know, with no historicity to, to 70 AD or the end times. But he says, in my father's house are many mansions. And the imagery there is of an Eastern wedding where a bridegroom is going to prepare a place for the bride. And then John's all too familiar with the, what he writes in Revelation 21. I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Interesting. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God will be with them and be their God. And Jesus sitting there, think about it, he's the bridegroom. He's sitting at a wedding, and he's the bridegroom. How do I know? Because later when John's disciples come along, and, and these guys get in trouble for being at this wedding. Hey, John's disciples are ascetics. They're, they're fasting, but, but your guys are drinking wine. You're meeting with sinners. Jesus said, while the bridegroom is here, you don't fast. He said, I'm the bridegroom. And it, this is what he was longing for. The day when God will wipe away every tear. No more death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. The day when the former things would pass away. Jesus knew that day at that wedding was not that day. He knew his hour was coming. He'd die on the cross. He was coming to bring something new, something beautiful. He was bringing joy back to man's relationship with God. God had the prophet Hosea marry a, a woman of harlotry. Because God said, Israel was my wife and played the harlot. And Hosea, I want you to know how that feels. And on and on we see this beautiful imagery of a wedding. It's so fitting and it's in John's mind. Now at this particular wedding, something had gone drastically wrong. They had run out of wine, which was game over, right? Wedding over, no more wine, no more joy. Major faux pas on that day, major faux pas on our day. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And again, it seems kind of brusque. Woman, you know, what's your problem have to do with me? And we struggle with that interchange. Now, Mary is one of the most prominent people in the Bible. Now, there's a denomination in Christianity that gives her too high of a place, and some Protestants give her too low of a place. Uh, of all the people that ever could carry the Son of God, that was her task. And God selected her because he could trust her. This is a woman steeped in Bible knowledge. Uh, she appears 20 times in Scripture. We only hear her speak four times. She speaks to the angel when the angel says, you know, you're going to have the Son of God. She says, how will this be? She speaks to Elizabeth, uh, the great Magnificat, right? The, 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 my soul magnifies the Lord. Listen to this. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is not the queen of heaven. This isn't the mother of all the earth. She's not sinless. Like all of us in this room, she needs a Savior. Uh, go and read her Magnificat. It's amazing. She quotes from the Psalms and other portions of Scripture. She weaves it all together. This was a woman who knew God. And she comes to Jesus, and the last two things she says are recorded here. The next to the last thing is, they're out of wine. And you think, well, why would she do this? Is, is she a tiger mom? Like, she knows who Jesus is, Right? She, Simeon had this prophecy. Many are going to rise and fall in Israel. Like, you know, uh, Jesus, you're 30. You're still living at home. <laughs> it's time to go. Time, show people who you are. Um, I think she has a real need. I think she was a close relative. That's why she's privy to this. I think it was a big deal for her. She certainly knows his power. And just to parenthetically come aside for a minute, there's something about what she does that I think we all have to look at. She comes to Jesus with her request. And this is very important. For you and I that follow Christ, in our Christian experience, we are going to hit 
trying times. And when I say trying times, I mean, we're going to have times we can't figure things out. God gave us a brain. He gave us an intellect. We have hands. We can do a lot of things. But sometimes we face deep waters. I had a friend of mine whose son was in a car accident. I didn't know all the details. I called him up. I said, Joe, you're in hot water. He said, Bob, I'm not in hot water. I'm in boiling water. My son's on life support. And we get to those places, and we have nowhere to turn. And Mary's in that place, and I know water running out of, running out of wine isn't as big a deal as like your child on life support, but to her it's a big deal. And it's a clinic here because she comes to Jesus and she just gives him the request. The Bible says that we should be anxious for nothing, with all prayer and supplication, make our requests known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds. It doesn't say make your request known to God, he'll answer the prayer exactly the way you want it, and then you'll be good to go. It says there's something about prayer when we make our requests known to God that we know he's got it. We know that he's heard. See, Mary has a relationship of trust here that is far greater than anything you and I maybe have ever experienced. She believes that he's heard. And the reason I know she believes she's she doesn't tell him how to do it. She doesn't tell him why he should do it. You know, Martha will do that later with her brother Lazarus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have never died. Anybody ever say that before? God, if you showed up on time, I'd never be in this mess. She doesn't do any of that. She makes her request, and the final words in Scripture that she says to anyone is, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Can I give you a piece of advice? When really important people talk, I listen. I share with you, I was with Henry Cloud for a week. I listen more than I talked. When Henry talks, I listen, okay? Listen to what Mary says. Do whatever he says. Last time I checked, your Bible has the words of Jesus in red. Can I give you some advice? Do whatever he says. Turn the other cheek. Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down. Come follow me. Treat your neighbors yourself. I mean, we can go on and on and on. There's a lot of red in your Bible. For those of you out there looking for new revelations and heavy revies, I'll give you an old one. Do whatever he says. It's enough to keep what's in the red, let alone all the other stuff. The lesson Mary teaches us, I believe, is she didn't know what he was about to do, but she knew whatever he would do would be right. That's the lesson. She had no idea what he would do, but she knew whatever he do did would be right. And that's the way we have to approach our relationship with God. The, the world is more complex than our little hula hoop of problems, right? All remember the hula hoop? We all have a hula hoop of problems. And yet we want the God of the universe who's connecting 8 billion people to connect it in the way we think will benefit us. And yet he's the God of all the earth. His ways are higher than our ways. The judge of all the earth will do right. When I was in Ecuador, we were in a church that was established in 1913 by six missionaries, all who were killed for their faith. A new batch of missionaries came, and they showed us a tunnel down to a closet where they actually hid their pastor. And that group survived. Today, that church is flourishing. I was about 45 minutes from the jungle where Jim Elliott and his team from Wheaton uh, went to reach a people group in the jungle in Ecuador. They were all killed. 
his wife went back, and if you ever watch The Gates of Splendor, it's one of the greatest missionary stories there that you'll ever see. Today, there are 185 compassion churches in Ecuador, 185,000 kids sponsored, church on every corner. The gospel has touched Ecuador in amazing ways. All to say, God's ways are higher than our ways. And we don't know what he's going to do in an instant, but we know it's right. And Mary understands this. Now, look at the extravagance. There's six water pots of stone. Jesus has filled them to the brim. Now, I did a little calculation for you, just to show you that I do work during the week. Six water pots, 30 gallons, that's 180 gallons. I found out, not through experience, but through research, that's 900 fifths of wine. Conservative estimate of $30 a bottle, $27,000 when people were already well drunk. Question is why? Why the extravagance? I think it's similar to the alabaster box of ointment that was poured over Jesus for his burial, and Judas said, what a waste. That extravagance is a waste. That could have been given to the poor. But Judas didn't care about the poor. He had his hand in the till. The reason why Jesus extravagantly turned that water into wine is because it was a symbol of what he was about to do. You see, he was the winemaker. He was the one who was about to bring joy to man's experience, not only with man, but with God. Like those six empty water pots of stone, Judaism was empty. The temple was grand. Herod had expanded it for 50 years. It was one of the wonders in the world. But there was no ark there. There was no prayer there. They were selling and buying in exchange. There was no life there. The people were carrying heavy burdens, 486 laws about the Sabbath day. And Jesus was about to do something new and something wonderful. The Bible tells us that wine is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 104, 15 said, wine maketh glad the heart of God. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel is the vineyard of God. You may have seen pictures uh, when they came into the promised land. I love Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9. And I chose the New International Version because it suited me for this one instead of the New King James. But think of this prophecy. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. This is Jews and Gentiles. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. What Isaiah saw a thousand years before was Revelation 21. He saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus was the winemaker. He was the one about to bring joy to an empty, dry, religious system of his day. And how many of us have come out of those systems? How many of us, the first time we heard the gospel, it was good news. How many of us had never heard a scripture before, had never seen life before? Jesus was showing us this is life in all its fullness, that the Christian experience is marked by joy. John Piper's legacy is that he created a term called Christian hedonism that instead of serving God being a duty, you can delight yourself in God. Sometimes when I drive to church, I think, you know, there's more people not coming to church today than are coming to church. And sometimes I'm behind bikers. There must be something down Route 1 they love. These big hogs, these bikers. 
And I'm like, what have you, and I'm always praying they're making the right hand turn into our church. And I know why they're not here. They think this is boring, there's no life here, there's no power, there's no joy. And Jesus comes and he turns water into wine. And the whole gospel of John is about newness. New wine, John 3, the new birth, new commandment, the new pouring out of the spirit, the new covenant. And Revelation, behold, I make all things new. God has come to give us something new. He didn't come to patch up Judaism. He came to bring us something new. The law came through Moses. It was perfect, but it was temporary. And grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to end with this. How would he do it? The key to the whole chapter is in one verse, verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, never calls her Mary or mom, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. My hour has not come. We all know the hour was the hour that he would die upon the cross. In the previous chapter, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. When he does that, he answers a 1,500-year-old question. Way back in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, the son that you love, it's the first time love appears in Scripture, and take him to the land of Moriah, to a mountain, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I tell you. Think of the wording there. Take thy son, thy only son, the son that thou lovest, to a particular place, and there offer him as a sacrifice. They leave the servants behind. Watch this. They go on a three-day journey. They come to the place, they build the altar. Isaac says, Father, there is the fire, there's the wood, there's the altar. Here's the question, where is the lamb? He's 30 years old, commentators tell us. Abraham takes the knife, he's about to kill his son. The angel comes, you know the story. Abraham, now that we know you're not going to keep anything from God, um, God will provide literally himself. God will, he'll be, God will be the offering. And there was a ram caught in the thicket and they made a sacrifice. You know what Abraham called that place? The Lord shall provide. The Lord will provide himself, literally. Isaiah 53. Behold the lamb. Jesus was the final lamb. The final Passover, the final sacrifice. The last time we saw this miracle, and we have seen it before, was in Egypt. Remember in Egypt when the water turned into what? Blood. Now it turns into wine. When it turned into blood, it was judgment on the Egyptians. There's still judgment here. Because to get wine, you have to press grapes. Gethsemane is called the place of the press. Olives, wine, whatever, it's the same, you cold press. In Gethsemane, Jesus sweated great drops of blood. When Jesus instituted communion, he said, do this in memory of me. He said, I will not eat or drink of the fruit of the vine. I will not drink wine with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The reason this imagery is so overwhelming is because John's already seen that day. No more pain. No more suffering. No more tears. All because of the power of of what Jesus would do for us. 
So we've got about eight people, two more people today, Tears in Their Eyes, going to be baptized. And we tell everybody, look, you know, jot down a few sentences on your phone because if you can think succinctly and share with us, the testimony is just more powerful. I guarantee you, no one's testimony today will be, you know what, I've lived a great life. I give in the offering, I come to church every week, I'm a good person, I'm moral, and Pastor Bob thinks so much of me, he thought I should just get in front of you all and get baptized. <laughs> no, they're going to be like that sinner who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. You know, that amazed Jesus more than anything. When the man said, look, I am unworthy for you to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant shall be healed. The Bible says Jesus was amazed. He wasn't amazed at Nicodemus' knowledge. He was the teacher in Israel. He wasn't amazed at the rich young ruler. He was amazed at the humility of a human being to know without God's sacrifice, we are lost, we are sinners. And that we have a wonderful Savior. And then finally, verse 9 says, When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, the servants knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and in verse 10 he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good stuff, and when the guests have fully drunk, then the inferior. You have saved the good wine until now. Now, some of your translations say, you have saved the best for last. And a lot of Christians are like, oh, yeah, Christianity is this, you know, we're slugging it out, but, you know, the sweet by and by is coming. One day we're going to be in heaven, and God has saved the best for last. Look, that's true. Heaven's going to be wonderful. I'll, I have no argument with you. But the translation, and the New King James got it right. I don't know what your Bible says. You have saved the best for now. And you guys have heard me say this a hundred times. You know, I'm part of the Calvary Chapel movement. So the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s where, you know, 1,500 people were at Pirate's Cove out in California. And masses of people getting baptized. Chuck Smith on Life magazine. And you sit around with some of these guys like, oh, I remember the Jesus movement. Wish it was like those days and the power of God was so strong, right? And then you got people at our church who have been here maybe 20 years and you're like, remember the barnstorms? Remember the media theater? They were the good old days. To which my response is, no, 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 no. I am thankful for all that God has done, but these are the good old days. Because these are the only days we have. These are the only days we have. In the chapter before, when Jesus calls his disciples, they say, Lord, where are you staying? You know what his answer was? Come and see. When Philip calls Nathaniel, he says, come and see. He doesn't say see and then, you know, you're going to come you know, see, and then you, you'll follow. You're not going to see some miracle. He says, come and you shall see. That's been my experience, 37 years. The invitation is to come, and you shall see. You shall see things you would never have believed. I have seen so much in 37 years that if I were to die today, God, you, you have filled me to the brim. And God just gives and he overwhelms us and he tells us come and see he has saved the best for now these are the good old days i'm looking forward to all that god's doing 
I love to read about what he's doing. I love to hear about it. I travel to where he's moving. I want him to move in my own life. And whatever season you're in, you have to take inventory. God, I love the season I came out of, but what's next? What's the new wine? What are the new horizons? It doesn't matter how old you are, how old you are in Christ. God, what's ahead? And you know, it's not gonna come in an instant, right? My friend Jim Maxim, uh, I remember he was a businessman and he was serving God and he was in a real tight spot and one January he fasted for 21 days. And God gave him this proverb that God is the one that gives witty inventions and that year they put something in place and there was business and it took off and five years later they sold it and, and he wrote a book and you guys have heard him speak here and, and Jim wasn't settling at 60 years old. Chuck Smith, my pastor, said his most fruitful years were 60 and beyond. He said, I spent all my life sowing seeds and all the fruit comes in at the end. Caleb and Joshua, we're still taking new ground. 